sometimes when people get stuck in their own mind where it's like, it's too expensive to eat healthy. I don't have enough time to eat healthy. Like those are limitations that you are creating for yourself because I guarantee you there is a person in the world that has a smaller budget and has less time and is working more hours or has other obligations that they're fitting in who's finding a way to make it work. So much of it comes from stepping out of those barriers that you create for yourself, that narrative that you tell yourself, the mindset limitations that you unknowingly place on yourself and say, okay, how can I make this happen? I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. Earlier in the year, Dr. Lauren Kelly Chu, head of clinical product at Levels, she sat down with one of our friends at Levels, Bridget Tigmeyer, who is a functional nutrition dietitian. And the two of them discussed this idea around nutrition and metabolic health. How can people think about the different food that they consume? What works for some people doesn't necessarily work for others. And so in 2021, Bridget started an initiative called the Blood Sugar Reset Program. Well, fast forward to 2022, she's now had over 7,000 people through the program due to its popular demand. And the idea is to give people insight and tools, things like recipes and meal plans that work with their schedule, things that are simple enough to recreate on an ongoing basis. It's not just enough to give people the recipes and the ideas, but more so to help them understand how different food affects their health. Things like eating certain foods and the stable glucose responses that come along with them. And so there are a lot of lessons learned through things like community, the changes that people have seen with increased energy levels and decreased things like brain fog. And Bridget and Lauren also discuss things like the differences and the importance in understanding how food affects men and women differently based on hormonal changes at different phases of life. Anyways, no need to wait. Here's Lauren. Bridget, so excited to have you back on a whole new level. Bridget is a functional nutrition dietitian who helps people find health through personalized nutrition. Bridget started her career as a nutritionist at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute and later joined Dr. Mark Hyman to open the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. In addition to running Being Functional Nutrition, Bridget also co-created a grad-level integrative and functional nutrition course at Case Western School of Medicine, where she's taught for the last six years. So excited to have you back and welcome. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me again. The first thing that I wanted to chat with you about is your blood sugar reset program. I know you recently completed um, one of these programs, and I would love if we could just start by you sharing with us what that is and how it works. I'd love to. The blood sugar reset is an incredibly popular 10-day nutrition program that is designed specifically to help people improve their blood sugar stability, increase their energy levels, and decrease their cravings. So essentially, we provide 10 days of meal plans that have been strategically designed to support blood sugar, and we ensure that all the recipes are low glycemic by uh, tracking all of them on a levels continuous glucose monitor. And it's something, it's a program that I started in November of 2021. And it was 
wildly popular then. So we ran it again in May of 2022. And we've had 7,000 people go through the program. And it's such a supportive and inspiring community of individuals that come together and are committed to improving their blood sugar support for 10 days. It really is an amazing community. I came on as a, a guest speaker during during the program, and it was so inspiring just to hear people's experiences with the program and how much change they felt was happening. Can you describe for people listening, what would be a common recipe and how did you formulate the recipes in general? We loved having you as a guest. It was actually the highlight of the program. So many people said that they absolutely loved everything, all of the knowledge and the research and the science that you contributed to helping them understand why they were doing what they were doing. Well, I appreciate so that, that was definitely really fun. When we formulate the recipes, our, our recipes really focus on three principles that are the most essential aspects of nutrition in my mind. The first is keeping them low glycemic to ensure that you're getting blood sugar support. The second is nutrient dense. So nutrient density, sometimes when people focus so much just on blood sugar stability, they forget about the importance of nutrient density, meaning where are those sources of micronutrients and antioxidants and phytonutrients coming from? How can you get the most bang for your buck calorically even though we're not big fans of counting calories rigidly, but if you have $1 to spend, where are you spending it? And what are those nutrients that you're getting in return to fuel your body? And then the third aspect is keeping it simple because we know that we can make super elaborate recipes that are beautiful in a cookbook, but the, the likelihood of someone actually being able to implement them when they have 20 minutes to figure out what their family's eating for dinner that night is very low. So we want it to be really doable. And that's something that we spend a ton of time and energy on is how can we keep the ingredients as few as possible for the shopping list every uh, for the 10 days? And then how can we keep the recipes simple enough that people can go back to them as a default quick dinner after they're out of the program? So really those three components are low glycemic, nutrient dense, and then making them simple. And a few other things that we aim for with all of the recipes that I think is always just helpful um, to, to consider if you're not doing the blood sugar reset, how you can try to create recipes that continue to support the blood sugar of yourself and maybe even your family. And that framework really is incorporating proteins, fats, non-starchy vegetables, and carbohydrates with each of the meals, typically some form of whole food carbohydrates which is always optional depending on a person's insulin sensitivity, at least five cups of non-starchy vegetables per day when we're formulating each of the days. We also incorporate smoothies for lunch, which is something that I'm a big proponent of because I, I like to chew my breakfast and I find a lot of clients that I work with like to chew their breakfast as well. But when it comes to lunchtime, when they're like really busy and they're trying to fit in a, a scheduled lunch that being able to drink a smoothie, get those nutrients in and help to support their afternoon energy levels is huge. So every day in the blood sugar reset, we have a smoothie for lunch. And that really, I think, uh, helps with just making the, the meal plan overall simple. And then the last thing is actually incorporating those forms of whole food carbohydrates. So you might be surprised that the, the recipes actually have 75 to 100 grams of real food um, carbohydrates each day, 
which might be higher than what some people might expect. Since it's a blood sugar reset, you might expect it to be super low carbohydrate. But we really focus on trying to incorporate those fiber-rich carbohydrate sources in the right portions that aren't spiking blood sugar, which is where the level CGM can be so useful. Of course, everyone has their own individual uh, response from a blood sugar standpoint to meals, but being able to modify the recipes as we're creating them based on the levels feedback is so valuable and helps us actually not have to overly limit carbohydrates so that people are getting those fiber sources for their microbiome. It's such a good point because I think people often think that if you're trying to have stable blood sugar, you can't eat carbs. And really what what I think is so rarely discussed is the, the impact of fiber, what you're describing, which is not all carbs are the same and carbs that come with a lot of dietary fiber the net carbs, which is to say the amount of that carb that gets turned into blood sugar is dramatically less. And in some cases is like one gram. You know, you could have a food that's nine grams of carbs per serving and seven of those grams are dietary fiber and you end up with a net of two. And I think people don't think in those terms. Uh, so I really appreciate you, you bringing that up. And also just, it sounds like your program really, it's meant to be accessible where it's, it's not overly crazy. Like you said, like I think so often, I've been to websites or blogs where there's gorgeous recipes and everything is beautiful. And then you look and you need 12 different ingredients and eight of them, you need a specialty store to find them. And it's, you know, it's like ground fresh turmeric. Not that that isn't a beautiful thing to have in your food, but if you're living an active life, it's hard to have every meal be this massive arts and crafts project. So I really appreciate your approach there. In working with all these people who have done the program, what have been some of the major takeaways or insights? Yeah, I would say that there's probably three big takeaways that I've found from from learning from so many of the individuals that have been in the community, because that's, of course, where we learn the most is from people that we work with. The first lesson from the blood sugar reset is that improving blood sugar balance is one of the fastest and most effective ways to decrease fatigue and brain fog, to create a stable mood, to improve focus, to improve quality of sleep. And then also from a long-term standpoint, thinking about the easiest and most effective ways to support fertility and hormonal health, to support healthy aging and longevity, to support liver health, to support cardiovascular function, so many other things that you know, last even longer than the immediate symptom improvements that people see. And also one of the most effective ways to feel like you're in control physiologically of the foods that you desire to eat. Because we always say that your, your cravings, your taste buds crave what you feed them. So if your taste buds crave what you feed them and you're constantly feeding them foods that are higher in sugar, and you also are physiologically having those blood sugar imbalances, it will feel like you are swimming upstream every single day of your life to eat healthy. So when you're able to improve that, and even in a 10-day period, you know, this is something that I've known for a long time is that the, the importance of blood sugar balance, of course, you know, this is something that Levels is constantly educating on the importance of and something that I've been educating on the importance of for the last 10 years. But it wasn't until seeing in 10 days the impact that people can have on their continuous glucose monitors to, and not everyone uses a continuous glucose monitor. There's just some people who elect to do that. It is not a prerequisite to join the program. But in looking at some of the people's data, it was astonishing to see the, the change that can happen in the literally a 10-day period of time. I think sometimes people think that 
making changes is going to take so long that it might not be worth the effort to put in initially. And it's like, no, no, you can actually change your physiology after 10 days of changing the food that you're putting on your plate every single day. It's so powerful. And then we've heard from so many of the blood sugar reset people, they've said, you know, I'm having better sleep and less joint pain. I'm astonished that I'm not having any cravings and that my sleeping is so much better. You know, I can't believe how much energy I have throughout the day. I'm not having any crashes mid-afternoon and I feel so much more motivated to do things and I feel less bloated and, you know, my mood swings and my crazy fatigue seem like they've mostly vanished and my cravings are under control. Like these are these are testaments that we're hearing from individuals who have done this for 10 days of their life and are seeing the reward and the benefit so soon after making the investment. So it it really reinforces the fact that blood sugar balance is one of the fastest and most effective ways to improve nearly every physiological state in your body and, and how you're functioning on a daily basis. The second takeaway is that people heal in community, not in isolation. So the recipes and the meal plans are, of course, we strategically design them. We reiterate and reiterate and reiterate depending on the impact of the feedback that we're getting from the level CGM. But it's like another aspect of the success is the wonderful people that are in the community that are striving for more in their lives. And I feel like when you surround yourself with people who are striving for more in their life, who are dedicated to consistency in their diet, who are taking their health into their own hands, who are showing up and not trying to be perfect, but just being vulnerable enough to say, I know that I'm capable of more. It's so contagious and it provides an opportunity for you to see possibility in other people that then you can bring back to yourself, where it's that idea that like, if it's possible for one other person on this planet or one other person in this Facebook group, it's possible for me too. If they can do it, why can't I? Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, it goes to to the fact that for so long, medicine has been dictated by a one-on-one doctor's office appointment. And when you see the impact in 10 days of what coming together as a community and choosing low glycemic nutrient-dense foods and meals that are simple, the impact that that can have on people's health in such a massive way, it becomes so clear. People heal in community, not in isolation. And we really need others on our journey with us. And then my last takeaway would really be that in order to create or make consistent change in your life, feeling hopeful and optimistic and like you are capable is such a crucial element. And that really speaks to the mindset of the mindset that you're embracing on your journey and the confidence that you allow yourself to hold. You have to believe that you can change your health in order for you to be convinced to take action and then to continue to take that action on an ongoing basis. And I can't tell you the feedback that we've gotten. I can't tell you how much feedback we've gotten from people who are like, This program just made me feel so hopeful for the first time in a very long time. And unfortunately, that's also an element that's missing in our conventional medicine system where it it doesn't always feel empowering, hopeful, optimistic. And those are really critical elements of people being able to pursue the healthiest version of themselves. 
It's so powerful what you do. And I so appreciate it because like I said, I think one of the big themes here is accessibility. It's what you said. You're giving people the evidence of their own behavior that they can make a change and that it's possible. And I think we don't talk enough about the psychology behind these things and the fact that it's it's not like people are choosing to be to eat unhealthy foods or choosing. I mean, yes, there's an element of choice, but I think so often we we create this idea that, well, if someone had more discipline or if someone had more willpower, if they just decided to do something differently, that then they would do it. And the reality is that behavior is so much more complex than that. And mindset is so interwoven into that, along with all these other circumstances and constraints that exist in real life with real people. And I just, I love how your program honors that and says, this is something that you can really do and achieve and that that's the stepping stone to the next thing. I'm, I'm curious when the program ends, how do people stay connected to this amazing community that's been created during the program itself? So we're still working on elements of that, um, how to continue the engagement after the fact. So we still have the Facebook group that people can like, you know, engage with um, and they do continue to engage throughout. Uh, I would say that the other way that they engage would be feedback that we've gotten is in their day-to-day life with their family members where they're like, this was what I needed to get me on the right track. And now my family is using these recipes as templates that we're using for dinner. And we're taking some of these concepts that we've learned from the recipes and we're integrating them into our day-to-day norm. You know, we we get messages from people months after they've done their first blood sugar reset saying that was when I needed to get started. And, you know, I just went to the doctor and they're taking me off of my statin drug or they're taking me off of my blood pressure medication or they're taking me off of my metformin. And it's because I've been able to to continue to embrace 80% of what I learned or 80% of what I was doing in in the blood sugar reset. And I think that's important too, is that it doesn't need to be 100% in order to see those results, right? Even if you take 50% away from the program, you're going to be a lot better off. And even people that are really educated, because that's something that we run into a lot is people who listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of blogs, and they're constantly looking for more and more information. And so often it's like, you don't actually need to put as much energy always into more information as you do into taking action, right? Like you listening to more podcasts about nutrition isn't getting dinner made for you on a Sunday night. So how can you, and maybe you're listening to a podcast and getting information because it inspires you while you're making dinner. That's even better. But I think there's so much emphasis on information in this information content age that people miss the importance of just staying consistent with their day-to-day actions. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I think it's it's so it's such a good point that bringing what they learned and kind of the energy of being in the bigger community into the family unit can be such an amazing way to continue progress and to just kind of keep that ball rolling. And like you said, it doesn't have to be 100%. It can be 80%. Exactly. Even, even if it's only 50%, it's still an improvement over what it was before. Exactly. And I think too, like what you're hitting on with the mindset piece and the, the community support being one of the most critical elements this was something that when I worked for Dr. Hyman and I was at the Cleveland Clinic, we, Dr. Hyman is really the person who initially opened my eyes to the power of community because that's a, a huge part of the mission that he's rolled out in his career. 
And he created what's called the Daniel Plan with Rick Warren and Dr. Daniel Amen, where they essentially took the community support from churches and they went into churches and had people make changes to their diet and lifestyle. They followed uh, the, the Daniel Plan that they created that was based on Daniel from the Bible and it was a 40-day program. We took that on as a philanthropy initiative when I was at the Cleveland Clinic. And we did that in inner city churches throughout the Cleveland area. And it was the first time that I realized there is so much research. I got my master's in public health nutrition. There is so much research and so much of the core essence of of public health is how can we increase resources financially? How, you know, people don't have enough time. There's food deserts. There's all of these limiting factors. I was not really taught of the limitations of mindset that are largely, I would argue in my experience, one of the biggest barriers for people, regardless of socioeconomic status and and backgrounds. Because we went into these churches of low socioeconomic status and gave them the nutrition plans, gave them the encouragement. They had small groups in their community of people who were just like them, who you know, we're sharing crock pot recipes and that sort of thing and, and strategies that they were using if they were working two jobs or, you know, trying to get their kids from place to place. We had nurses go in and do the pre and post biometric screenings and the improvements that we saw in weight, blood pressure and blood sugar in a 40 day period of time with no doctors, no medication, no real medical intervention, just a food plan that was budget friendly and encouragement, support, and mindset shifts to say this is possible is giving me actually full body chills right now because the results were so transformative. And I think that sometimes when people get stuck in their own mind where it's like, it's too expensive to eat healthy, it's, it's I don't have enough time to eat healthy, like those are limitations that you are creating for yourself because I guarantee you there is a person in the world that has a smaller budget and has less time and is working more hours or has other obligations that they're fitting in, who's finding a way to make it work. So, so much of it comes from stepping out of those barriers that you create for yourself, that narrative that you tell yourself, the mindset limitations that you unknowingly place on yourself and say, okay, how can I make this happen? Mm -hmm. Thank you, first of all, for doing such impactful work. I really I, I know that our audience appreciates it, but I just feel like it's worth saying over and over is this is the kind of work in the community with groups of people, whether that community is virtual or in person across all different kinds of socioeconomic background, different cultural and racial groups, different gender, different ages, all of these things. I think having people who are out there impacting all these communities is so, so powerful. And I really appreciate all the work that you have done and are doing in that regard. And I think what you're saying is is so important also to recognize, which is, first of all, there are ways that that we can impact every community regardless of constraints. And also that encouragement and a little bit even of resourcing can make a world of difference. You know, it's I, I always kind of think about it as people are always saying, well, where is the new drug coming from? Like, what's the miracle drug going to be for weight loss or for, you know, Getting an art, when is the artificial pancreas really going to come into existence? And there's amazing science and research being done. And also, in many ways, the magical pill, we already know what it is, right? We have it. And it's, it's behavior change and it's creating ways. And that's not to say behavior change is easy. I think it's the, almost the hardest problem out there to solve right now, right? This is an enormous challenge. 
Um, and I wouldn't say that I've figured it out even for myself all the time, right? Like I'm constantly trying to understand my own psychology, but, but it's there. We know, we know the behaviors and the changes that create health. And so having people like you going out there and really applying that and problem solving and saying, okay, well, this is how this person lives. They have two or three jobs. They have this budget. This is where they spend their time. These are the pain points and the constraints. And then saying, okay, how do we make it work within that? It's just, it's such important work. So thank you. Switching gears a little bit, um, you know, I think so much of the diet and nutrition advice that's out there doesn't really distinguish between women and men, or let's say male and female physiology, despite the fact that our bodies are very different. Um, you know, I think as many people say, women are not just small men, women are not just men with breasts, right? There's intricate hormonal balancing happening for both males and females. How do you approach this difference in your work? It's a good point. And I think that the lack of recognition between the needs of males and females stems largely from the lack of research that has been conducted in women of of reproductive years who are, are still menstruating because for a long time they were left out of the research because when you're dealing with hormonal fluctuations throughout the month, uh, it adds another input that research typically doesn't like because you know you're trying to control as many factors as you can. So since there has been, a, you know, the NIH has changed to say, yes, we need more research conducted in females of reproductive years and we'll include them in more studies, thank the Lord. Uh, we see that I think there's more recognition around the fact that there are differences physiologically in males and females, which means that there are different needs that they have as well, especially when it comes to nutrition. And I, I typically, you know, we work with all categories. And by categories, I mean people who are, um, I'm going to say people that are born a specific gender just for simplicity's sake over the nutrition factors. But uh, as far as, uh, you know, males and the hormone uh, impact that has females that are postmenopausal and then females of reproductive years that are still having a menstrual cycle because postmenopausal females and males typically are, are more similar because the postmenopausal females, after you um, go through menopause, you don't have the hormonal fluctuations on a monthly basis like women of reproductive years have. So it's really this category of women who are still menstruating who have different needs than the rest of the population. And this is something that has been very eye-opening in working with Levels clients that are in this category because the number of people that have come to me saying, I'm following this low carbohydrate diet. I'm intermittent fasting. I'm doing high intensity interval training. I'm, uh, you know, doing all of the things and checking all the boxes from all of the, the things that I've read about the benefits of intermittent fasting, because there are a ton of benefits to intermittent fasting when you think about improvements in insulin sensitivity and decreases in blood pressure and improved weight loss and supportive metabolism and improved cognition. You know, longevity. I mean, the the list is fairly extensive. But when you are a woman that is still menstruating and having those hormonal fluctuations, you actually could be doing more harm than good by not dosing those hormetic stressors appropriately. And that is something that I see all the time in these women that are frustrated with their level CGM data, where they think that they're doing everything that they've been taught from the research done in males or postmenopausal females, 
And they don't understand how it actually, because it's hard to think. When I say, I think the solution is to increase your carbohydrates in your diet. They look at me like, no way. (laughs) Or when I say, I think that the solution might be to decrease the window of fasting that you're doing because 16 hours might just be too hard on on your hormones. It might be creating... Uh, issues with your estrogen levels, which we know can actually impact your ability to lose weight and can also impact and increase cortisol levels. It can tell your body that you're not safe to get pregnant. So you might be having more issues with ovulation. It can, those drives, those increases in cortisol can also impair thyroid health, which then can negatively impact your, your metabolism since the thyroid is such a regulator of metabolism. So it's much more intricate and not so black and white as you would think when it comes to should people fast, do intermittent fasting or should they not? Is 16 hours the right amount or is it not? Because there's this whole category of people who are having different uh, levels of hormones throughout their their menstrual cycle every single month that need to account for those in order to, to support their physiology and to support those fasting glucose for levels for going down and everything that's involved with that. And I would say too that, you know, we see fasting glucose levels being a concern for several levels users that will start working with me because they want to work on lowering their fasting glucose. They're not having a lot of spikes after their meals, but it's this fasting glucose that's really difficult to come down. And if they go to a traditional endocrinologist and show their endocrinologist the data, the endocrinologist will say, oh, this is likely just the dawn phenomenon. This is a normal thing that happens to people. You're doing everything right since you're being proactive with your diet and your lifestyle. And it actually appears in in my experience that women in their reproductive years that aren't eating enough carbohydrates or that are fasting for too long may be having elevated fasting glucose levels because their cortisol levels in the morning are either way too high or flat lines completely because they are just burning off of cortisol all day long. And that's negatively impacting their thyroid function. And then that can actually impact and decrease a woman's ability to ovulate. So you might see disruptions in the regularity of your cycle or difficulty getting pregnant. And it's not all chalked up to the dawn phenomenon, in my opinion, and in my experience of working with some of these women, helping them to decrease their hours of fasting or increase some of those sources of carbohydrates, or even just to ensure that they're getting enough calories in their diet because under eating calories can do the same thing. And and that's where I think that, you know, it becomes much more nuanced than just, you know, what works for men works for women too. Mm -hmm. That makes so much sense. For the women listening, especially of the reproductive years, are there certain times of during the menstrual cycle when it's easier or harder to say fast, do keto or make other diet changes? Like, is there a way that, that women can optimize around their cycle phases? Um, I do believe, yes. So there's going to be different times of the month that your body will do best with different fuel sources and fasting windows that don't create as much stress and don't impact hormones as much. Through a, let's say that you have a regular 28-day cycle. The regular, a regular 28-day cycle will include your, your menstrual cycle as day one. So the first day of the bleed is also the first day of your cycle. And that is part of your follicular phase. So the first half of the month essentially is your follicular phase. And then you move into ovulation. And then after ovulation, you move into the luteal phase. And then you, 
you know, uh, shed that lining after the luteal phase that starts to build up throughout the luteal phase that then takes you back to day one of your cycle. So when it when you think about times of the month that are easier to fast, uh, that would typically be in that follicular phase. Now, some women are going to have a difficult time doing that when they actually are bleeding or when they're in that um, the the menstrual phase. So you'll want to potentially bump that out to just that window of time that you're in the follicular phase before you ovulate. And that can be a time that you may do better because your hormones are a little less complex. It's typically in the second half of your cycle, which also happens to be the time actually that women are more insulin resistant, where you'll see potentially changes in your CGM data. Uh, We see all the time that in the first half of the cycle, women can eat, uh, you know, more carbohydrates without seeing an increase in in blood sugar. And then the second half of the cycle, you'll see changes in your ability to process the same amount of carbohydrates at the exact same times of day compared to the first half. So thinking about the the ways that you can support that would really be paying attention to how you feel uh, at different phases of your cycle, starting with 12 hours of fasting overnight and then trying to just slowly work your way up instead of thinking like, let me let me throw in 16 hours of overnight fasting because I've read about all the benefits of improving insulin sensitivity and that sort of thing so that you're not you know jumping into the deep end too quickly where then you're noticing more anxiety in the afternoon or more cravings mid-afternoon where you're just like overeating and that sort of thing or impaired sleep or other symptoms that can that can happen. And then the other thing that I would say is make sure that you're tracking your cycle. I can't emphasize the importance of that enough. I wish I had learned about that sooner. Even with me being in the functional nutrition space for the last 10 years, I feel like I I wasn't even, I didn't understand the importance of that until probably halfway through uh, the time that I've been working in functional nutrition, because you really want to be to be having a period every single month so that you're shedding that uterine lining that decreases your risk of future cancers and really helps to support your overall metabolic health and your decreasing risk of chronic disease. And in addition to that, making sure that the changes that you're making to your diet, like if you're decreasing your carbohydrates, that that's not causing a delay in your ovulation or in uh, dysregulating your cycle altogether. And I think actually many healthcare providers think of the menstrual cycle as another vital sign. And unfortunately, this is an entire other conversation. I think the way that society has treated the menstrual cycle in general is the opposite of that in the sense of it's almost like women feel the need to hide it. I mean, it's it's rarely discussed even in groups of women. It kind of is. But but it's really only recently that I think even conversations about hormones, this like vague term, but that's so important, has even felt acceptable. In, in public. And of course, in certain medical communities and other communities, these things have been discussed much more openly for a longer time. But just colloquially and kind of in the communities, I think, um, you know, a, a friend of mine recently shared that it's only recently that she realized that the period and the bleeding portion is just one part of the overall menstrual cycle, that the menstrual cycle actually refers to the whole month. And I think this is a common belief, right? It's like you're either on your period or nothing's happening. And, and of course, everything is happening all the time. Um, and I guess just to, to, to give a little bit of attention to women who are outside of their reproductive years, um, is there anything that you especially recommend or keep in mind for women either going through menopause or post-menopause, or I guess in menopause is how we would say it? So when you're going through 
menopause or you have gone through menopause, typically you'll see a decline in insulin sensitivity. So after you have you experience those changes hormonally, uh, insulin sensitivity unfortunately goes down to some extent. So you may not be able to get away with eating the same amount of carbohydrates as you were able to in your reproductive years. You may actually benefit from doing a little bit more intermittent fasting pushing that window a little bit longer. Of course, depending on the individual, it's not going to be the same for everyone. But uh, paying attention to the amount of carbohydrates that you're getting, increasing your protein, because for every decade that you live, you unfortunately lose uh, lean body mass, muscle mass, which helps to improve insulin sensitivity, unless you're doing two things. Unless you are eating enough protein in your diet and uh, and doing some form of strength training or resistance training at least two days a week. So thinking about those two things as helping to support your lean body mass so that you can continue to have the highest level of insulin sensitivity possible. And then also in that phase, paying attention to symptoms that you're experiencing as well as clues and signs of what could be happening. So if you're experiencing a lot of hot flashes or mood imbalances or a significant decline in sex drive or energy levels, really trying to figure out, ideally with some kind of a practitioner, what is causing those changes? Because that's not just something that you should accept as a normal part of going through menopause. There's a lot of factors that can be optimized to decrease those types of symptoms. Sometimes it just comes down to some adaptogenic herbs like maca that has been clinically studied and found to improve hot flashes and other symptoms that are associated with menopause. Or it could be decreasing the amount of carbohydrates that you're eating eating more protein with your meals so that you can increase your lean body mass, being able to figure out what works best for you is is really important in making sure that you're not just accepting the symptoms because society tells us that that's the normal experience for a menopausal woman to experience. Similar to, you know, for a woman that's still menstruating, it's not normal to have, you know, excessive cramping and extreme bleeding and having a difficult time going to work every time that you have your cycle, those are all signs that something is off balance, not that you just need to accept because the norm of our society is that women should be in pain in that time of the month. Mm -hmm. It's such an important thing to point out. And I think it applies. There's so many examples of this where we've come to believe that something is normal when in fact, it's actually the symptom or reflection of underlying dysfunction, um, dysfunction that oftentimes is created and can be reversed by lifestyle. So it's, um, thank you for, thank you for saying that. Going back now to the other side of the spectrum of uh, the, the female life cycle, for, for so many women and men, fertility is top of mind. I've, I've heard a lot of conversations recently on this topic. Um, you, you're on the medical advisory board and helps to formulate we natal. And I know that fertility is one of your areas of focus. I know that we, we don't have a lot of time, but would just love to hear how you got into this space. Yes. So I've always been fascinated by, uh, by fertility and nutrition specifically, just in the research that's been out for the last 20 years showing that a simple nutrient like folate can actually significantly decrease risk of neural tube defect talk about food as medicine, when you think about the power of nutrients in that period of life and those being the building blocks for forming future life, I find to be incredibly fascinating. In the last 
two years, I've really developed an, an interest in fertility because one statistics show that one in eight couples are infertile, which is absolutely astonishing. And then also in my own experience with fertility, uh, my husband and I were uh, nine weeks pregnant about a year and a half ago. And we went into our check-in appointment and our practitioner who was so lovely, she was so enthusiastic talking to us about plan for working together for the next seven months. And she started conducting the ultrasound and her face just went blank. And she said, I'm so sorry, but I'm not detecting a heartbeat. And based on the baby's growth, it looks like we lost it about two days ago. So that was obviously devastating, especially because I felt like I had been checking off so many boxes that you know I, I was I was eating so well and doing all the things that are just incorporated into my lifestyle as you know a, a product of the field that I work in and all the different factors but it was really the most devastating when I was at a follow-up appointment with a different OBGYN who actually had conducted a DNC because I I could I had waited a month to miscarry and I, I actually didn't miscarry, which I didn't know was a thing. Um, even though I had worked in healthcare for a long time, I didn't know that it's fairly common for women to not miscarry and to lose the heartbeat and then not miscarry right away. So I had a DNC and then the follow-up appointment with the OBGYN and I said, I'd like to check my hormones since drops in progesterone uh, in the first trimester can be a contributing factor to increased risk of miscarriage. And also I'd like to get my thyroid checked because that also contributes to loss. And she said, no, we're, we don't do that until after you've miscarried twice. <laughs> I said, excuse me? The, the panel is, I know for a fact, is less than $200 out of pocket if insurance isn't involved since insurance inflates the cost of labs you're not going to run a hormone panel and a thyroid panel and try to just make sure that everything is is right before we try again and then potentially lose a baby again then then you'll take a more proactive approach to supporting my hormonal journey so i mean i've been working in functional nutrition like i said for 10 years we work with ceos and executives that have concierge medicine doctors i'm used to us running more advanced labs on clients and you know helping their doctor be able to work them off of medications that they've been placed on through diet and lifestyle changes like i'm used to to those deficiencies in the medical system but i was astonished that this is the standard of care that we have for females who are going through such a vulnerable emotional phase of their life of trying to start a family and in accepting loss without looking into anything further. And of course, miscarriages happen with no explanation, even though you're doing everything right and all of your labs look great. But in order to prevent a woman from enduring the physical and the emotional pain that's associated with the miscarriage, in addition to their spouse, because of course the spouse, you know, grieves the loss as well. It's so important for us to be proactive about these things, to be checking hormones, to be checking thyroid imbalances that can contribute to miscarriages, to be checking for nutrient deficiencies like, like B vitamins, and to be looking at blood sugar and fasting insulin because we know that poor metabolic health is a driving factor of not only miscarriage, but also poor birth or uh, poor birth outcomes and birth defects, and even looking at genetics so that you know 
if you're possibly susceptible genetically to nutrient deficiencies, like if you have an MTHFR SNP and need additional methylation support, how that isn't a factor in the whole picture was shocking to me. And it has really lit a fire under me to say women deserve better, families deserve better because it's the couples that are going through the experience. And how can we ensure that couples can feel confident that they are checking as many boxes as possible going into pregnancy? And I really believe that the formula that we've created for We Natal helps to at least check that box to know that you are getting the optimal dose of nutrients in the most bioavailable forms, not only for you, but also for your partner, because we know that males contribute to about 50% of um, infertility and to miscarriage. And I was astonished when I was pregnant and I went into two separate appointments at my four-week and eight-week appointment and was asked, are you taking a prenatal? And I responded, yes. And they said, good. And I asked, do you want to know what prenatal I'm taking? And the answer both times from both practitioners was no. we're happy that you're taking a prenatal. That was also absolutely mind-blowing to me because there are so many prenatals on the market and some of them are so absolutely horrible that they are not supporting the health of the future child. How can that be thought of as, you know, everything being, every prenatal being the same and not offering any additional education on nutrition and lifestyle when you're forming the building blocks of a future child? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, first, thank you so much for your openness and sharing your own story. I think often we don't talk a lot about miscarriage and other aspects of fertility and infertility. And so thank you for for being open about that. And the story, there's so many aspects of it that are disappointing in relation to the relationship with the provider and then all these other things that you're mentioning. And I think one that really stands out is that when you ask to have tests done, regardless of what her response would have been in terms of saying yes or no, the the hope is that every person is encouraged to be proactive in their health like you are, to be curious about their health, to try to understand their body, to really be their own doctor in that way. And that's not to say that doctors don't have a lot of expertise. And I have a lot of respect for my practicing physician colleagues. And also, No one is going to care about your body and your health more than you. No one knows your body and your health more than you. No one will advocate for your health more than you will. And 99.9% of the time, we're not sitting in the doctor's office. And so what I think is really disappointing among the things that you mentioned on that encounter is that you came in with the exact mindset and approach to your body and your health and your, your, your kind of life that we would hope all patients are empowered to feel and you were completely turned down. And actually, if anything, were made to feel, or I think the intent was to make you feel that you had done something wrong or that somehow you were saying something crazy. And um, I really hope that that changes in the medical field because the mindset that you went in with is exactly how change is created. So um, that's that's really disappointing. And similarly, this this question of what prenatal vitamin you're on, I think the there's so many aspects of this in terms of the way that physicians practice, but the lack of interest in what is actually happening to patients' bodies and what's actually going into their bodies and informing, like you said, the creation of the baby and also the maintenance of the mother's body. Because the mother's going through these massive fundamental changes in her nutritional needs and in in everything. Um, So, so much work I think is required to, 
to improve on those metrics. Is there anything else? We're basically out of time, but we've touched on so many topics of women's health, fertility, menopause, blood sugar in general for both men and women. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure that we touch on? I think we I think we covered it. Um, I, I would just say from a, a fertility standpoint that I'm I'm trying to always educate for people that we work with that are past the fertility age the importance of, of blood sugar support for you know longevity and cardiovascular health, but not to lose sight of the fact that if you are in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s and you're thinking about having a family, balancing your blood sugar is one of the most important things that you can do to decrease your risk of infertility, to decrease your risk of miscarriage, to decrease your risk of birth defects and malformations that happen in the heart, kidney, and brain to to children that are born to women that have higher blood sugar levels. And not to mention the female's experience going through pregnancy and being able to decrease risk of preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. We see that people that have imbalances in blood sugar going into pregnancy, that it is only worsened or exacerbated by pregnancy and puts them at a greater risk of gestational diabetes. So some of the leading contributors to infertility today are blood sugar imbalances and oxidative stress. And those cited in the research are driven by poor diet, nutrient deficiencies, tobacco use, alcohol use, sedentary behavior, and substance abuse. And so thinking about it just from a creation standpoint, you know, how we can serve not only ourselves, but also future generations, taking care of yourself, balancing your blood sugar, increasing the nutrient density in your foods are one of the most critical ways that you can do that. Absolutely. And, and of course, having gestational diabetes then also increases your risk of developing diabetes. So all of these things are linked. And to your point, I think the sooner that you're able to control your blood sugar, the, the, the more you're able to, to reduce the risk of each condition at each chapter in your life and just overall as you move through, through the different chapters of your life. If people are interested in learning more about your work, in joining the next Blood Sugar Reset, um, in, in, in engaging with your community, what's the best way for them to find you? So you can follow me on social media at Being Bridget, B-E-I-N-G-B-R-I-G-I-D. That would be one place to find me. And then our next blood sugar reset is our blood sugar reset program is free and it'll be November 7th through the 16th of 2022. So you can go to my social media and then click the link to, to sign up. We hope that you'll join us because the community and in the program is really exceptional. 